You know, you and I live in a superhero crazed age, right? There are so many different films that are done and so many different superheroes that are all around us. Batman, Superman, Iron Man, Wonder Woman, Black Widow, Black Panther, etc., etc., etc. And probably most of us have our favorite superheroes and our favorite superhero films. But I've got a question for you this, this morning. How many of you would say that you have a spiritual superhero? Somebody, actually hands are going up, okay, that's fine. Somebody that you look up to spiritually and you think, man, I would love to be like that person or to have at least known that person. It could be, obviously, somebody who's living today. It could be a Christian throughout church history that you look up to or perhaps even a character in the Bible that is somebody, again, that you just look up to and just think about how amazing they must have been spiritually. I've got several heroes, if I'm being honest with you, from probably almost every age of church history. And I've often wondered what it would have been like to sit and hear the preaching of Charles Spurgeon, for example, who was called the Prince of Preachers. What must that experience have been like? Or maybe George Whitfield, who his preaching helped to ignite the Great Awakening. Or maybe John Chrysostom, thousands of years ago, who was nicknamed Golden Mouth or Golden Tongue. He was um, just the most eloquent and amazing preacher of the early church. Or imagine spending time listening to the devotions of Sarah Edwards with her children. Or walking side by side with Adoniram Judson as he brought the gospel to Burma. Any of these would just be such incredible experiences for us as believers. But as a Christian, one of the things that I've often wished that I could be a part of when I think about these spiritual giants or these superheroes is I wish I could have been a part of their prayer times. I mean, can you imagine sitting there next to these spiritual giants and just having that like insider information into what they prayed for, how they prayed, with what fervency they came before the Lord? What an incredible experience that would be. This morning, you and I have a great privilege because we do get to experience an insider's look into the prayer life of a spiritual superhero, a spiritual giant. Arguably one of the most gifted, spirit-filled uh, individuals in the church's history. This is the Apostle Paul, of course. And this morning we're looking at a prayer that Paul offered for Christians in the city of Colossae. Paul here in these verses is coming before the Lord and he is praying on behalf of these believers. And you and I are going to get an insider look into his prayer life. If you were here last week, you'll remember that back in verse 3, we read that Paul was always giving thanks for these Christians. Ever since the day that he heard about their faith, he was offering prayers of thanksgiving to God on their behalf. But in verse 9, we pick up this week, with what the specifics were, what the content of those prayers were that he was always praying for on their behalf. You'll remember also from last week and from verses 7 and 8 that Paul got word about these Christians in Colossae from a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who preached the gospel in Colossae. He's the one who God used to establish the church there. But then Epaphras made the nearly 1,000-mile trek to Rome to go visit with his spiritual mentor, the Apostle Paul, who was in prison at that time in the city of Rome. And he went there, really, 
to seek counsel. Because these Christians in Colossae were, as many early Christians were, they were under the threat of false teaching in Colossae. And these false teachers, who we're going to learn more about as this letter unfolds, they were threatening the very faith and the well-being of this young church. And so Epaphras visited Paul. He told Paul about these Christians. He told them about their faith in Jesus, but he also told them that they were under threat. And this was what caused this letter to be written from Paul to the believers in Colossae. Before Paul, though, gets into the false teaching that threatened their faith, he just begins by letting them know, I'm praying for you. This is the starting point. I am praying for you. Ever since I heard about you, I've been praying. And now he's explaining to them, again, what exactly he is praying for. Now, there are four things specifically that Paul prays to God on their behalf for here. And it's interesting how different Paul's intercessory prayers are than most of the prayers that we pray for each other. Now, I just threw around a term, intercessory prayer. Really, all that means is it's a type of prayer in which you pray for another person. You're taking their needs before God. That means you're interceding for them before God. And Paul here is interceding for these believers. But it is interesting, again, how different his intercessory prayers are from what most of us often pray for when we're praying for another person. You may have already noticed some of the difference. Typically, when we pray for each other, we pray for things like this. We pray for maybe help with school for a student. We pray for work issues. We pray for relational trials or drama. We pray for people's health. We pray for jobs and careers. What I find so interesting is that Paul rarely prays for those kinds of things in the New Testament. Instead, what we find Paul focusing on is spiritual matters. Whereas you and I tend to focus our prayers for one another on physical things, Paul's emphasis is almost always on spiritual things. Whereas you and I tend to emphasize temporal things, things in the here and now, Paul tends to focus on eternal things and his prayers before God. Notice with me the things that he prays for. The first thing found in verse 9 is he prays for growth in knowledge. He wants them to grow in their knowledge. Look again at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what is he praying for? He's praying that they would grow in knowledge, that they would be filled with knowledge. Knowledge of God's will. Now, generally, when, when you and I think about the idea of God's will, the sorts of things that we have in mind is, should I go to this college or that college? Should I marry this person or not? Should I pursue this career or that career? And that is certainly part of what we mean when we think about God's will. And all of that stuff is very important, but this is not what Paul has in mind at all here when he talks about knowing the will of God. In the context of the book of Colossians, and even in these verses right here, the knowledge that Paul wants them to grow in, 
that he wants them to be filled with is knowledge about all that God has done for them in and through Jesus Christ. And you're going to see that in the rest of this prayer. And you're going to see it all over the book of Colossians. In fact, if you go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul expresses his desire for them to grow in knowledge in this way. Here's what he says there. Colossians 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There he wants them to grow in their knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ and what Christ has done for them. Over in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins Ephesians very similar to how he begins Colossians. Here's what he writes in verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven or in heaven and on earth. So there in a similar prayer in Ephesians, Paul again is saying that what he wants them to know or understand is the mystery of, of God's will, which is God's purposes in Christ for them. So here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul begins this great prayer for them by asking that they would grow, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will or God's purposes in the world, a knowledge about what God is actually doing for them through Jesus. Specifically, that they would understand the way in which God has rescued them and saved them through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And notice that this knowledge or this wisdom that he wants them to have, that he's begging God to give them, comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from God himself. That's why Paul attaches spiritual wisdom and understanding to this knowledge. The New International Version makes this, uh, or explains this helpfully when it translates verse 9 this way. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So this knowledge that they need is knowledge that God himself has to give them. God's the one, the Holy Spirit is the one that has to fill them with this knowledge, because guess what? Apart from the Holy Spirit, you and I would never know or understand or believe all that God is doing for us in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this clear. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul's first item on his prayer list is that these believers would be given insight into God's 
purposes, into all that God has done for them in Christ. Now, I know that many of you pray for other Christians. Many of you pray for each other here in this church, and that's a great thing. But a part of our intercessory prayers for one another ought to be that we would grow in spiritual wisdom, that we would grow in our understanding of all that God has done for us. See, at our conversion, the moment you say yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit fills you, you are opened up to spiritual wisdom and understanding. But we will never arrive. These Christians still need to be filled, according to Paul. So they're already filled with the Spirit, but they need to be filled with more understanding of all that God is doing for them. The second thing that he is praying to God for is found in verse 10, and now it is growth in holiness. So he began with growth in knowledge. Now it's growth in holiness. Look at verse 10. So as to walk, he says, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What does it mean to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? Do Christians have their own unique strut that they kind of walk around that makes God happy? I hope not. That would be weird. The idea of walking in the Bible is often just describing a way of life. In Psalm chapter 1, famously, David begins, Blessed is the one, blessed is the person who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked. What he means there is, blessed is the person who does not live according to ungodly counsel. So when Paul here writes, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, some of your translations helpfully say, live a life that is worthy of the Lord. What Paul is praying for here is that they would live holy lives, that they would live lives that honor God and glorify God, that they would live lives that bear fruit, godly fruit. Now, notice that this holy life is the result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will in verse 9, right? He was praying in verse 9 that they would be filled with that knowledge of God's will so that they could now live a holy life, that they could bear fruit, that they could walk worthy of God's will, Growth in holiness is the result of growth in spiritual knowledge. As the Spirit of God continues to form our minds and give us understanding about the purposes of God in the world and the purposes of God in our life, it results in a holy life. For the Colossians, their failure to grasp all that God had done for them in Christ was tempting them to believe certain things that would lead them to ungodly behavior and would lead them to a life that would not please the Lord. What were some of those beliefs that they were being tempted with? I'm going to put them on the screen here. We'll get into them more specifically in chapter 2, but these young Christians were running the risk of believing that the spiritual life or spiritual growth was found in a certain diet, or honoring religious festivals and religious days in the calendar. We see that in Colossians 2, verse 16. 
They were running the risk of believing that spiritual life was found in asceticism or self-deprivation, you know, denying their body of certain pleasures and things, that that was the road to spiritual life. We see that, as well as the idea of worshiping angels in chapter 2, verse 18. Lastly, they were tempted to believe that spiritual life and growth in godliness was somehow connected to treating some foods and some objects as being clean and treating other ones as if they were unclean and that that was somehow the road to pleasing God and growing spiritually. And to all of these ideas, Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I say all of this to make this point, that for the Colossians, By failing to understand all that God had done for them in Christ, they were opening themselves up to the temptation to believe certain things and behave in certain ways that ultimately don't honor God and don't glorify God. And the same is true for us today. Namely, that if you and I, if we don't understand all that God has done for us in Christ, It opens us up to being tempted to believe certain things and do certain things in our lives or with our bodies that don't ultimately glorify God, that don't ultimately bear good fruit. Let me just give you two quick examples of how this could work. The first would be legalism. Legalism is a problem in the church, has always been a problem in the church. Legalism is the idea that I can earn God's favor. That's the operating word there, earn God's favor. We should laugh at that. You can't earn God's favor. But it's the belief that I could earn God's favor through my own righteousness. That I can do the right things and I can be so moral and so righteous that now God has to accept me. God will accept me. Why would somebody believe that? They would believe that because they are failing to understand all of what God has actually done for them in Christ. Namely that our righteousness comes through Christ's righteousness and we receive it by faith. And the problem there with legalism is that it's either going to lead on one end to really, really ugly pride. Think about the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. The legalists are the ones who look at their own righteousness And they're filled with pride and then they look down on everybody else because, well, you guys aren't as righteous as I am. You're not as godly as me. You're not as blessed as I am. So it can lead and often does to an ugly pride. Or on the other hand, it can lead to a defeating discouragement. Because if you really believe that you have to earn God's favor and you're not really good at living a righteous life, then you're just going to throw in the towel and give yourself over to despair and discouragement. And many people have fallen off that cliff, trying to grow spiritually. Example two. So we had legalism. Let me give you one more example. Idolatry. Failure to understand all that God has done for us in Christ can lead to idolatry. The reason for that is if you and I fail to understand our identity in Christ... That you and I are fully loved and fully accepted children of God. Then we open ourselves up to a temptation to find our identity 
and our value and our meaning and our worth in something else, some other functional God. You can call that an idol. And that idol can be your career and your job. It can be money and success. It could be a relationship. It could be your sexuality. It could be any number of things. And people find their identity and their sense of worth in these things because they fail to grasp who they are in Christ. And so Paul here is saying, I am longing for these Christians, these young believers, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, filled with an understanding of God's purposes for them in Christ, so that they can actually walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. These two things are connected. And it's essential for for our spiritual life. Okay, let's move on. The third thing that Paul prays for is found in verse 11. Here's what he says. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Here, thirdly, what Paul prays for is he prays now for growth in spiritual strength. Growth in spiritual strength. Now Paul here, he prays that these believers would be strengthened to the point that they would have endurance. That's a great runner's word, right? Endurance. It means that you do not get tired. You can just keep on going. If you're a long distance runner, that means that you have built up great endurance. We have a few long distance runners in our church. Lisa Cook. She just ran a half marathon this morning, if I understand right. Amazing. Uh, Devin Nelson just ran the San Francisco Marathon. And we have a few other long-distance runners in our church, but the theme is they're actually, they're all women. You go, girls. <laughs> Kudos to you. That's awesome. But, but these women in our church, they have what we would call endurance. They have an ability to keep going and going mile after mile without giving up, without quitting, without running out of gas. That's the idea of endurance. So Paul is praying here that these Christians would have the strength to not get tired in the Christian life. To not get to a point where they go, ah, it's far enough and I can't go any further and I just have to throw in the towel and walk away. Why does Paul need to pray that way for them? Answer, because the Christian life can be exhausting. Life, whether you're a Christian or not, can be exhausting. Life is challenging. And even as believers, we face all sorts of challenges. And as believers, we face even unique challenges. But we're all going to have things that tempt us in life to throw in the towel and to quit. To say, I'm done with this. It can be a debilitating disease that you get. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be persecution, like we are praying about for other Christians around the world. It could be temptation to sin that you're just so tired of fighting and you've been fighting and fighting and you're just like, I'm done. I'm giving in. I'm throwing in the towel. We need endurance. And Paul is praying for this for these believers. And then he attaches a related term. He says endurance and patience. Patience. He's praying that these believers would have patience. What's the difference between endurance and patience? I like the way that N.T. Wright 
distinguishes between these. I'll put this on the screen. N.T. Wright says this, he says, endurance is what Christians need for an apparently impossible situation. Okay, so a circumstance that's really challenging. And then he says, patience is what Christians need for an, an apparently impossible person. So that's the difference. One is what you need for that situation that seems impossible. The other one is what you need for that person that seems impossible. Now raise your hand if you've ever met an apparently impossible person by a show of hands. You ever known somebody like that? Now, now raise your hand if you're married to an apparently impossible person. There's a lot of hands going up. Hold on, family. Those are the people that need intercessory prayer from us right there. Now, here's the key, though. Notice, notice that Paul here, he says that the strength that they need to deal with impossible situations and impossible people is according to his glorious might. So Paul recognizes rightly that in order for us to do the Christian life right, for, in order for us to make it to the finish line and not throw in the towel early, we need a strength that is outside of ourselves, Namely, the strength that the Holy Spirit himself gives us. Left to their own devices, these believers aren't going to make it to the finish line. They're going to quit. They're going to give over, give up in the face of persecution. But filled by the Spirit of the living God, how can they not make it to the finish line? Paul says this in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's confidence was. That God would give them that strength. That God would carry them to the finish line. That God would give them endurance and patience. And there's one more thing. The kind of spiritual strength that the Holy Spirit gives to us allows us not only to make it, no matter how hard life gets, to not only make it, but don't miss this, to make it with a smile on our face. Endurance and patience with joy. That's huge. This is different than the non-Christian who, who endures hardship and suffering and tragedy and trial, but they endure it just gritting their teeth and muscling their way through it, and they're given over, perhaps, to a life of bitterness and frustration and anger. Paul here is praying that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to not just have endurance, not just to be patient with hard people, but to be able to go through all of that with joy which is a fruit of the Spirit, as you know. That we would have that unique quality, that, that unique virtue of being able to endure all of life's ups and downs with grace and with an ability to maintain a joy underneath the surface that nothing can take away from us. We need God's Spirit to give us a knowledge of all that God has done for us and is still doing for us in Christ in order for us to be strengthened to endure and to be patient with joy. And Paul's not just writing this 
as theory. Do you remember Paul and his buddy Silas in Acts chapter 16 in a city, the city of Philippi, where they were arrested by the magistrates, they were attacked, they were beaten with rods, we read. It says that they were severely flogged in Acts 16. And then they were stuck in a dungeon and they, had, they were in stocks. They had chains wrapped around their, their feet, possibly their hands too. They're in a miserable place. Their bodies are aching and it says around midnight. They started to pray and they started singing hymns to the Lord. They're singing worship songs. They're praising the Lord in the midst of that suffering. And of course, if you know the story, the Philippian jailer gets saved, as does his household. Paul had experienced the strength that the Holy Spirit can give to a person that allows them to endure challenging circumstances and apparently impossible people and endure it with joy, with a smile on his face, with a capacity to say, even though this stinks, even though this is so hard and so challenging, and I would not wish this upon myself, God is still good. My future is still bright. I have reason for joy and for hope and to have a smile on my face. So Paul prays for this, that they would have spiritual strength. Oftentimes when we think of spiritual strength, we just think of these like external gifts, like an ability to heal a person through your prayer or maybe preach powerfully or see thousands of people come to faith through evangelism. And that can be a demonstration of the Spirit's manifestation and the Spirit's power. But often and more often when the New Testament talks about spiritual strength, it's talking about character. It's talking about the kind of person that God forms you into. And that's evidence of the strength of the Spirit taking root in your life. Okay, fourth and finally, and we're done. Paul prays for this now. He prays for growth in thanksgiving. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul wants them to be a a people that are giving thanks. He wants them to be a grateful group of believers. Now we give thanks when somebody does something that's kind for us or something helpful for us, right? Like we don't just teach our children to say thank you to everybody in all situations. Like they just walk around and say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We don't teach our kids to do that. But we do teach our kids that, hey, when somebody does something that's kind or that blesses you, you say thank you. Gratitude should flow from that. Paul knows that in order for these believers to grow in gratitude, in order for all of us to grow in gratitude, what we need is we need a better understanding, as I've been saying, of all that God has done for us in Christ. Because when we understand how kind he's been, when we understand how much good stuff he's done for us, it produces gratitude. It produces thanksgiving in us. And so Paul says there in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. And now he's going to start unpacking what the Father has done for us. To the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now that word qualified is significant. Uh, When I applied for grad school, Part of that process was that I had to submit 
my bachelor's degree. I had to submit a letter that I had to write or an essay that I had to write. I even had to submit recommendation letters from a couple of people to get into grad school. What Biola was trying to do through that process was they were trying to make sure that I, in fact, met the qualifications that I needed in order to be admitted to their program, right? To qualify for something means that you meet the, the things that are necessary there, that you have, you have the accomplishments that are necessary in order for you to fit some function or some office, This verse is telling us that we should be thankful to God because, not that we qualified for something, but we should be thankful because the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Let me put this differently for you. God has caused you, if you're a Christian this morning, God has caused you to meet all of the necessary requirements to share in his inheritance that belongs to the saints. Now, what is this inheritance? Well, when we think about an inheritance, we know what that is. That's when when somebody dies, it's their property or their possessions passing on to their heir or whoever has a right to that. So when me and Erica die, our three sons will receive whatever we have at that time. Uh, But that's their inheritance, Right? And the Bible talks about how we have a great inheritance. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 describes it this way. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That sounds awesome. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It sounds really amazing. It sounds incredible. And it must be when you stop to think about how the Bible says that you and I are co-heirs with Christ. So what kind of inheritance do you think Jesus is worthy of? We, by virtue of our faith in him, get to participate in that. We get to share in that. This must be a rich and glorious inheritance that is in store for us. And guess what? God has qualified each and every one of us who have put our faith in his son to share in that inheritance. We don't have to submit an application We don't have to achieve a certain level of status. God has done all of it for us. How? Well, Paul gets to that in verses 13 and 14. Here's what he writes. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what Paul's saying. God did this by performing a rescue mission, a divine rescue operation. Before you were a Christian, you, whether you knew it or not, you belonged to the kingdom of darkness. You belonged to the kingdom of the enemy. And it's a kingdom of evil and misery and fear. And its head is none other than Satan himself. But God, because of his great love for his people grabbed hold of you, he snatched you out of that kingdom, and he transferred you over to a kingdom of light, the kingdom of his own beloved son. So just as if you maybe at one point in your life transferred from one school to another, or you transferred from one job to another, 
And that meant, hey, I used to belong to this school, but now I belong to that school. You used to belong to this kingdom and God transferred you. It's like a parent taking you out of one school and saying, I'm transferring you over here to this one because it's way better. And that's what the father did. He took you and he transferred you from this kingdom of darkness and fear and evil. And he put you into a kingdom of light and peace and joy and righteousness. And the king is none other than his own son. It's a beautiful truth. Now the word redemption in verse 14 is a loaded theological term. It means to pay the price or to purchase someone's freedom out of slavery. This was a meaningful word for Paul and for every other Jew because it would take them back to the Exodus when they were physically and literally slaves in Egypt and God with an outstretched arm and a mighty mighty hand, he redeemed them, he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and they were the redeemed people of God. And now we know that in Christ, God has redeemed us, he's ransomed us, he's rescued us out of an even worse fate. He's rescued us from slavery to sin and to death. What was the price of our redemption? It wasn't money. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us exactly what it was. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What was the price For our redemption, for us to be freed, released from slavery to sin and death, released from a kingdom of darkness and transferred into a kingdom of light, the price was the death of Jesus on the cross. Where Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin. He received our sins upon himself. He paid for our sins. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could experience forgiveness from God. And because we've had our sin forgiven, God qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. And because we have our sin forgiven, God moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And because we have our sin forgiven, you and I have the hope now of eternal life in God's kingdom for all time. Here in this prayer, this beautiful prayer, that Paul prays over the Colossian church. He is pleading with God from a prison in Rome. And he's asking God to help these believers to have a fuller understanding of all that he had done for them in Christ. So that they would be able to not be swayed into false teaching and other ways of trying to please God or grow in spirituality, but instead that they would be able to be rooted in Christ, that they would be able to walk in a a manner that was worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work. And Paul knew that if they could grasp these things and they could understand this, it would produce unending gratitude and thankfulness in their hearts. And the same is true for us. As we continue to explore, and we're going to do this in Colossians, explore the depths of what God has done for us in Christ, it'll have all of these same effects. Paul's prayer here is a wonderful prayer of intercession. And I believe it teaches us a lot about how we can be praying for one another in the body of Christ. But I want to close now with just three bullet points of application 
that you should add to your prayer life immediately. Number one, first off, make intercessory prayer a regular part of your prayer life. If you don't have a daily practice of praying for other people that, are, that don't share your name, you should start doing that. Praying for other people, praying for one another in the body of Christ. This is why we create every year a church directory for all the members of this church. And in that directory, I meant to bring one up here, but I didn't. In that directory, there are pictures of every member in our church with their names, describes their family. There's area there for notes. So when you hear about prayer requests, you can jot something down and you can pray for each other. So make it a regular part of your prayer life that you would intercede. Number two, pray for spiritual growth and needs more than physical growth and needs. Now, I'm not saying instead of. Our physical needs matter, and we do pray for those things. But I would say we, we're so much more lopsided in the direction often of just the physical temporal. And I think the Bible's calling us to say, guys, this is not our home. And ultimately what matters is what kind of people are we being formed into? Are we becoming more like Jesus? And are we going to make it to the finish line? Are, are we going to continue growing in our faith? Number three, pray when you're praying for each other, pray for a better understanding of all that God has done for us in Christ. Because as we've talked about today, everything else here is connected to that. So pray for one another, that we would grow in our understanding of the gospel, that we would be a people who really, really get it and we're firmly rooted in Jesus and in what Jesus has done for us. Praying for one another is perhaps the greatest way that we can minister to each other. And to be honest with you, it is the starting point for all effective ministry in the body of Christ. May you and I be diligent in praying for one another. And with that, please allow me to close by praying for you. Let's pray.